You know that there are many in my age demographic, some of you are represented in this room right now, um, and we want to make a difference. I mean, like, we want to have an impact on our world. Now, I know some of you are thinking, yeah, sure, well, then why don't they stop partying, playing video games? Why don't you stop being stuck on your phones? And would you stop mooching off your mom and I, right? Hey, you thought it. I just said it, right? It's true. We do want to make a difference. I think a big reason why is because of the ancestry that we follow. We naturally want to impact the world like those that have gone before us. And since early childhood, we have looked at those people with with great pride. Hey, let's be honest. Half of America voted for a, a president whose slogan was, let's make America great again. So either you uh, think America was great at some point, or you are just overwhelmingly enamored with the words of our new president, right? Look, I know that the generations in the past haven't always gotten it right, and I know that they weren't perfect, nor is my generation, but I do believe that they've done a lot of good. I like to think about it like this. There's my my great-grandparents' generation. A couple pictures on the right are a couple of my great-grandparents' And I, as I think back about their generation, I think of World War II. Um, I think of a generation that, that stood in the, in the face of peace uh, in the midst of, of disaster and some very nasty dictatorship who did not respect human life. Then there's the generation that they, 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 they walked through the Depression. Um, and they came out stronger than ever after going through so much difficulty and the loss of so much. They're a generation of hard workers and world changers. Then there's my grandparents' generation. Um, This is my grandma and grandpa Nave on the right. Um, And as I think about their generation, I think about how they dealt with civil rights. Now, I know that it's not perfect, and I know that there's still some brokenness. But I think the dream of Martin Luther King Jr. has been realized. I mean, policies aside, we had an African-American president for eight years. I grew up knowing no difference between myself and the the friend of mine that sat just beside me in the classroom that had darker skin, or the buddy of mine that I played football with growing up, or the person that I just simply called my friend. Not only that, this generation got to be the ones that conquered space, what I wouldn't give to be a part of that exciting time in uh, in our you know, I mean, you think about it, like this desire to reach the moon and man conquering moon, that's, that's an awesome thing to think about if you're a part of that generation. Then there's my parents. Now, I, they could be seen as people that gave us as hippies or, you know, disco. There's Travolta up there from Saturday Night Fever on the top corner. Uh, and my dad did rock a pretty sweet afro in 1980 when him and my mom got married. <laughs> but as I think about what that generation gave to us, I think about the idea of the technology, that how much that's changed over the last uh, 30 years. I mean, think about 8-track to iPod. That's a, that's a pretty big transition right there. That's pretty good stuff to think about. But then you come to my generation, young adults, and I sure hope you other young adults would agree with me that I hope that our mark on society isn't social media, right? Like, I hope that they don't look back and say, they gave us Facebook and Twitter, Actually, as I've ministered alongside other young adults and ministered to young adults, these people want to leave an impact. There's actually a terminology that some use. It's called, they they want to be a hero generation. We want to make a difference. One young adult put it like this, saying, we want to change the world. 
the environment, helping those in need, fairness, you name it, all these things matter to us. We want a revolution to get behind, and without one, well, we fill our lives with little revolutions that flare up and give us some sort of momentary buzz of espresso. It's saying that, that our, our, as a society, as young adults, we, we do want to make a difference, but our society is different Generations that have gone in the past, they went to a, to a school, they got a degree, or they went off and got a, a, a trade um, that they learned, and then they spent their life in that career. Now, it's said that young adults today will spend their life in over nine different careers in their lifetime. Nine different careers, not nine different jobs, careers in their lifetime. That's crazy. One put it like this, my generation is desperate for meaning. We want to have meaning. We want to have purpose. And in all honesty, I think whether we are old or or young, we would all answer the question of, do you want to make a difference with a resounding yes? You bet. Absolutely. Because it's at the very natural instincts of who we are. As humans, we have goals to have purpose and have value, and we search after it in all kinds of different ways. And at the heart of it is an identity crisis, a desire to find validation. Now, that term validation is defined as this, the act or process of being recognized or established or, or to be illustrated as worthy and legitimate. You see, we all want worth. We all want purpose. We all want value. We want to be validated by something. For some, we find our validation in our achievements. This morning, we're going to be looking at the four Gospels. They're the first four books in the New Testament. If you want to go ahead and turn over there and mark, kind of put a, put a thumb in the Bible, have that ready. We're going to be kind of flipping back and forth from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That term gospel means good news. It's the story of Jesus' life. It's found on page 783 in the Bibles in front of you. And as we do this, we're going to look at uh, some interaction that Jesus had with one of his closest companions. His name's Peter. Now, Peter was was an ordinary man. He grew up next to the Sea of Galilee in a town called Bethsaida. That town, uh, the meaning of that means the house of fish, grew up right next to the sea. He also grew up as a Jew. And while we cannot be sure of this, some believe Peter would have started training to become a rabbi. That was a Jewish um, leader. But um, he didn't live up to the expectations, um, to the achievements needed to be a rabbi. So maybe around the age of 12 or so, he would have dropped out of the training and taken on the family business and become a fisherman. Whether this is true or not, we, we can't be for sure. But what we do know is this. Peter was not much different from you or I. And for sure, in the culture of that day, he would have not been the first pick of the Messiah's right-hand man. At least you wouldn't think. I mean, surely Jesus would have found some sort of trained figure who knew the word of God forward and backwards. Surely he would have found a religious elite figure and said, I want you to partner with me and I'm the Messiah. Simon was his personal name. Peter was the name Jesus gave him. It means rock, of which none of his prior achievements seem to point to that. He doesn't seem like a solid, steady figure necessarily. That name was given to him when he was found doing the family trade, fishing. 
In Acts chapter 4, verse 13, the, the religious leaders of that day say this about Peter. Now, this is after he had spent time with Jesus. It's after Jesus' death and resurrection. It says this. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were, here it is, unschooled and ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Isn't it true that in our, our society we try to, try to think our achievements will validate us? I mean, think about it, right? We lace our resumes like full of all of our accolades, one after another, making sure we don't, we don't skip out on anything. Or you look at anybody's social media posts and they're, they're quick to pat themselves on the back. And we try to accumulate more and more and more to put on the achievement list But then why are there so many people that have college degrees working dead-end jobs? They thought that their achievements would bring them some sort of financial success, but it doesn't always. Rattling off some sort of uh, list of life achievements to convince somebody that we're right for the position doesn't make us right for the position. You see, no matter your age or your generation or our society... We are told that our identity is somehow found in our achievements, the accolades that we get. But I think there are a lot of dusty trophies and old achievement plaques. There are a lot of forgotten dreams and retired businessmen and women that would tell us just the opposite. Our world wants to define us by what we've done. God defines us by something something else. The second, I think some people look for a validation in their career, like in the work that they are doing, right? I mentioned Peter was a fisherman. Some of you know that fishing can be a test of patience, probably why I am not a fisherman. I cannot sit there and just watch the pole. I just I can't do it. Uh, but Peter, Peter wasn't fishing for leisure, right? He was fishing for a living. He had, to make a, he had to make a buck. He had to pay the bills with his fishing. He and his brother and then a couple other brothers, um, James and John, were we're in this together. They're in a little business together, and this is what, how they earned a living. But all four of these men would be called to be disciples. In Luke chapter 5, we find the, the story of these men being called to just that. So if you want to turn over there with me, in Luke 5, um, found on page 835 in your Bibles. It says this, starting in verse 3. He got into one of the boats, this is Jesus, the one belonging to Simon, that's Peter, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said, Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night, haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled for their partners in the other boats to come and to help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. For he and all of his companions were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so were James and John and the the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up to shore, left everything, and followed him. I love this scene, right? Jesus is like, hey guys, drop your nets, and let's push out farther, and let's drop our nets. And Simon's like, come on, man. Like, right? I had a rough night. We didn't catch a thing. What are we going to catch in the middle of the hot, sunny day? But 
almost in like a reluctantly sense, like, well, yeah, he, he just been teaching. He knows what this, this Jesus is about. So he's like, okay, we'll, we'll do it. So they cast off, they drop the nets, and sure enough, this large haul of fish comes to him. I think that's Jesus's way of telling Peter, of confirming, like, I know you want to do big things with your life. Like, I know you want to have purpose. I know you want to, to be able to impact people in big ways. And I know that you're not finding validation in your work. He's saying, let, let me give you your identity. There's a professor at Loyola University that said this. He said, we need work. And as adults, we find our identity and are identified by the work we do. If this is true, then we must be very careful about what we choose to do for a living. For what we do is what we will become. I think I disagree with that. I think God's word would disagree with that. I mean, our work is going to impact our identity, right? I mean, what we do for a living obviously is going to impact a portion of who we are, but it can't be our sole identifier, right? Retirement is case in point of this. They say that the first stages of retirement are a stage of like honeymoon, right? Just like, man, this is awesome. Some of you that have retired in this room might be able to attest to this, right? You enjoy it. You're excited that you have free time, that you don't have to worry about the kind of hustle and bustle of, uh, of getting, getting to work at a certain time or the stress of the job. You get to work on those projects. You get to go out and play golf. You get to go live in Florida for half the year. I mean, you enjoy your retirement, right? But then about 8 to 12 months in, they say that retirement hits the second stage. They say it's a stage of depression and anxiety, a stage in which the person questions their identity. According to Career Builders reports, it's said that 60%, 6 out of 10 people who retire will return to another job after they retire. Why? Because they put so much stock in that as an identifier of who they are. Look, you can work hard. You can do great things in your business and with your career, but there's going to be ups and downs, and someday you might get fired. Someday the job might not be there anymore, and for sure someday you're going to have to retire or you're just not going to be able to cut it anymore. You see, our validation can't be found solely in our work. So then maybe we look at it from a different angle, right? For some, they look to be validated by their status, You know, in most cultures, there are rituals for young men to become, um, to like take the next step, to be considered to be a man, right? Uh, There's these these special things that are asked of them, and once they perform, usually it's some sort of physical trial, like then they're considered to be a man. Uh, In in Hawaii, the the native people um, would take their their young adults to these, their young men to these, these secret valleys. They would do these uh, certain rituals, and then they would leave them, and they would have to swim home in the ocean, the open ocean all by themselves. Once they reached the shore, they were considered to be a man. Or there are uh, Indian tribes, Native American tribes, that would have spent nights out uh, in the mountains all by themselves, all alone. Uh, and once they returned from a certain amount of stay, isolated, they were considered to be a man. Or in Africa, there is a tribe there of, of tribesmen who were, were asked, to, as a young adult, you had to kill a lion. Like you had to kill a lion. And then once you killed the lion, you're good. You're considered to be a man. I hope so. Man, if I killed a lion, I hope I'd be considered a man. Whew. Gosh. Peter had this, like, natural inclination towards leadership. 
There's no doubt of that. Even the passage that we just looked at before he was uh, being called to the, the discipleship, he's just this voice. Like, he's the guy that people followed. Okay, we'll drop the nets. Okay, we're coming over to help you get all the fish out. He was respected as that. However, his initiation into leadership as a disciple was, was a little difficult. In the Gospel of Mark in chapter 8, we hear this story. It's found in verse 31. Um, if you want to turn over there with me, you can. Um, and it says this in, in verse 31 of, of chapter 8. This is Jesus is, is teaching the, the disciples, and he's, he's about ready to tell them the death by which he's going to die. And, and he says this. He then began to teach them, and the Son of Man must suffer many things. And be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Okay. Like, come on, Peter. Like, Peter's thinking, like, hey, I got to be the leader. Like, we're not going to let you die, man. Like, come on. Uh, Come over here. Let me have a talk with you. And Jesus' response is this in verse 33. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Wow. I mean, you talk about burn, right? Can you imagine what Peter would have thought when he said, Get behind me, Satan? I mean, can you imagine how the other disciples were like, Sweet, we got something new to razz him with. He was always putting his foot in the mouth, it seemed like. And outside of Jesus, though, it's pretty clear that Peter was that type of voice or leadership for those other men. He was a guy that asked the question that everybody was thinking. He was a, a man who Jesus would say, I'm going to build uh, my church on, on this, on the rock. Peter, that was his, his name. I'm going to use you to help lead and establish that, that first church. He was a natural at leadership, but the idea of, of, of his status defining him, of him finding validation in his leadership, well, I can definitely tell you this. He wasn't validated when he was called Satan by Christ. That was not a validating moment. And I can only imagine that years down the road, as, as Peter did lead that church, as he was a voice of truth, as one of Jesus' disciples who had walked this earth with him, that he would have thought back to this moment. And he would have thought, I never want to hear God the Father or God the Son look down upon me and say, get behind me, Satan. He would have thought about the role of leadership that he had and his status. And he would have been reminded of of the paradox that Jesus gives us of what leadership looks like in Matthew 20, verses 26 through 28. It says, not so with you. This is Jesus talking. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. You want to be a leader? You better start helping others out. You better start caring about other people. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, our status isn't going to be defined by our position, by our status in this life. Uh, We are not going to be identified solely as that because someday you won't have that status any longer. Someday, every single one of us will die. President, you'll die someday. Boss, they'll die someday. Coworker, they'll die someday. And we all stand before God whether in, in the status that is all the same. And we'll have to answer to the Lord. So we can't find our validation in our status. We can't find it in our achievement. We can't find it in our work. 
So for some, they think, well, okay, I'll find it in being a courageous person. Like, right? Like, they're the warrior spirit. Like, they like to just bump authority type thing. General Patton was a very effective tank commander in World War II. But his accolades seemed to consume him. Actually, it's said that at the end of World War II that uh, Eisenhower wanted to get rid of Patton. Like, he was ready to fire him. He was ready to let him go out of his command because he kept saying things that kept getting published in the news. And it was like, this is not what we want to be uh, known for and to stand for. It's said that Eisenhower and Patton met and Patton went to his knees begging for his job. Why? I think it's because that's where he found his identity in. Like, he was like, I'm the guy that goes into war. And I, man, I, I like war. I like battle. I'm the courageous guy. One author said that apart from famous general, Patton was a very hollow man. Peter wanted to be a courageous man. And my guess is, women, if you were to turn to the guy next to you, you were to grab the man in front of you and you were to ask him, do you want to be a courageous man? Every single one of them would say yes. Like, we want to be the guy that in the situation that a mass shooter walked in, we're going to be the guy that goes sprinting and tackling the mass shooter and taking all the bullets for everybody. Right? I mean, like, we're the one that if we had a fight for something, like, we had to go into war for something that we really cared about, you bet we are going to courageously step up into battle. I mean, I'm clenching my fist right now thinking about who was ready to fight me, right? And that's who we are. Men have that natural instinct, this desire for courage in our lives. And Peter wanted to be a courageous man. But sometimes his courage left him with those foot in the mouth moments. And his courage led him to a moment at the end of Jesus' life, right before um, he was to be taken and taken to the cross in this situation in Matthew 26. They're in the garden. Um, Jesus has, uh, has uh, told them about what's going to take place. They obviously know at this point. And Judas is bringing this, these people to come and, and to take Jesus. It says this in verse 50 of chapter 26. Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend, speaking to Judas. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword. We know from the Gospel of John that this was Peter. He drew it out, and he struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus told him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think that I cannot call on my father who at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scripture be fulfilled that says it must happen this way? You see, the sword can only define us for so long. Courage can only take you so far. God had empowered the sword of his people throughout the Old Testament constantly. Like, they're going into battle. The numbers are totally out, outweighing them. They're, gonna, they're all going to die. They're going to be slaughtered. But they have God on their side, and they win, right? I mean, the sword was something that, that, that God had wielded. But Jesus rebuked Peter because of the sword. He says, put it back. It can't happen this way. I think he's referring back to the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 53, it says this. He was oppressed and afflicted. This is Jesus that's prophesying about. Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before the shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? You see, God could have let the sword define him. 
God could have wrecked this earth with a triumph of heavenly angels wielding swords. And he could have convinced us by pure might that we should fear him and obey him. But God wants us to see all the power that he has and the ability to wipe evil from this earth in one full swoop, but instead to give us a second chance. Because if he was to take the evil from this earth, he would have to take us. In a literal sense, he could scare the hell out of us or just send us to hell. But God doesn't want us to fear him like this. Yeah, he wants a healthy reverence. He wants us to have respect for his power. He wants us to know that he is a mighty and powerful God. But he also wants us to understand that he's a God of grace. You know, in the scriptures in John, it talks about Jesus coming full of both grace and truth. That he came for those things together. Not one or the other, but both of them fully. That God is a God of justice, but he's a God of grace and mercy. So instead of fearfully submitting to God out of fear, we would instead humbly accept his will. So what does that mean for you today? It means you don't need to defend God. Like, he can defend himself. It means you don't need to stand on the street corners and yell at people and tell them why they're going to burn in hell. It's not the way Jesus instituted it anyways. He doesn't want warriors full of anger, motivated by a hatred of of a people in this world. He needs humble, yes, courageous men and women, but ones that are motivated by the love of Christ and see the brokenness of the world around them and want to point people to who he is. A God that is, yes, mighty and powerful, but full of love and peace. You see, warriors will always be at war. Peacemakers will one day live in peace. We're not going to find validation in our achievements, in our work, or in our status, or in our courage. And we will never find our validation in our sinfulness. Like, nobody starts out with a desire to be validated by their sin, to be known by their brokenness. But this is how the devil twists our perception right? Right becomes wrong. Wrong becomes right. It's what makes a culture accept things like homosexual marriage or splatter televisions with, and computer screens with nudity and perversion. It's what allows vandalism to be seen as a rightful protest or murder of an unborn child to be seen as a choice. And it's disrespect of authority to be seen as one's freedom of opinion. For many Americans, they're all right with being called by their sin. For some of them, they even would revel in it. This is the path that brokenness takes. After one feels that they can no longer live up to a standard of what truth is and what is right, they just say, why try anymore? Right? Let's just give up. You know, let's just say that this is how I identify myself and this is what I'm going to do. Brokenness destroys us in that way. For others, Satan is still trying to convince us of that truth. Like in the meantime, he's going to try to tell you that you are too sinful, that you are too messed up, that you are too broken, that you could never be mended, that God could never truly forgive you for that thing, for that situation, for that sin of yours. He tramples them with the lie that their life is so broken that the creator of the universe could never fix it. You see, Satan sees our names and calls us by our sin And God sees our sin and calls us by our name. How do we know that? How do we know that our sin will never validate us? 
Look at this. In Luke chapter 22, here's this situation of, of Peter. Um, Peter is, uh, has been told by Jesus he's going to deny him three times. And here's the, the ending of that third denial. Peter replied, man, I, I don't know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the words that the Lord had spoken to him before the rooster crows today. You will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. He just totally broken. I mean, I think it's here that, that Peter's realizing, I spent three years in the presence of this man. And he's my friend, and I know that he's more than just a friend. I know that this is the Son of God. And he told me not even 24 hours ago that I was going to do this. And I did it. I turned my back on my buddy, but I turned my back on the Son of God. I think Peter wept because it's in that moment that he felt, how could I ever be forgiven? That he felt I deserved death. And he did. See, the next thing you hear of, uh, of Peter is a story in John chapter 21, if you want to turn over there. So we're going to close out this morning. It says this in verse 2. Um, and uh, we're going to just talk through this. It says, Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, well, we'll go with you. So they went out, got into the boats, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, well, throw your nets on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the nets in because of the large number of fish. Then, they, then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard this, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and he jumped into the water. Look, I, I think verse 2 is kind of like Peter's give up moment. Like, right, he's hanging out with some of the guys, some of the disciples, and it's just like, well, guys, I don't know what else to do. Let's just go back to fishing. I'm going to go out and go catch some fish. So they get in the boat. They obviously, they, they don't catch anything. I wonder, did the other guys, did they know? Did they know that Peter had denied Christ? Did they know that he had lived up to what Jesus said he was going to do? But here they are, and this familiar scene plays out. Hey guys, what you doing out there? Fishing? Why don't you throw your net to the other side? And the hall of fish is so big, and he had to have recalled that moment. He had to have recalled the time in which he was called to be a disciple. And he realized in that moment that his achievements had not defined him. His work had never defined him. His status was not going to define him. And for certain, his courage never defined him. The thing that had defined him all his life, or those three years of his life, was Christ. And there he was on the shore. So he gets his stuff together, and he hops into the boat, and he frantically swims the shore. Now, once on the shore, they uh, have a dinner together, a breakfast, and uh, then there's this situation that continues. In verse 15 of, of chapter 21, it goes on, and it says this, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? 
Well, yes, Lord, he said, you know, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, well, yes, Lord, you know, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. Then a third time he said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now, Peter was hurt because he'd asked him this a third time. Do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know, in all things, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. You know, our translations don't do this passage very much justice. Because if you really know what's taking place, the first two times Jesus asked Simon, do you love me? It's this, Simon, do you love me? I mean, would you give your life for me? Would you die for what I've taught you and what I have told you? And Simon's response is, Peter's response is, Jesus, I really, really like you. I mean, like, you are my pal, and we're best friends, and I really, yeah, I really, really like you, Jesus. No, 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 Simon, do you love me? Jesus, I I really, really like you. And then Jesus does this. The third time he switches his language, and he says, Simon, Simon Peter, do you really, you really, really like me? And he says, yeah, I really like you. He knew what was going on. He knew that Jesus was talking about those denials. He knew that he couldn't live up to that. At least he never thought he could. And that's how Jesus works. He meets people where they are at, and he helps them to get to where they need to be. Verses 18 of 19 of that passage say this. Very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went, from where, you went where you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and some, someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter's life would continue. He would be a man that Christ built uh, a church on. He helped to lead that early church. And some days later, he would give his life for Christ. He was crucified himself. And some say that Peter begged to be crucified upside down because he didn't believe he deserved the same death as Jesus. That he couldn't live up to that. He deemed himself unworthy. But he understood whose he was in Christ. I, know, I like how John Eldridge put it. He said, God finds men, he renames them, and he calls them up into great roles. Gideon was in hiding in an empty well when God addressed him as a mighty warrior. Peter didn't exactly have a high view of himself, but Jesus called him a rock. Their peers thought James and John were knuckleheads, and Jesus called them the sons of thunder. This is a critical moment in anyone's life. We must hear who we really are and receive genuine validations. That's how God works. He meets us where we're at, but he never intends for us to stay there. As Peter led those early churches, there's a situation that arises and he's writing a letter to this church. And I think he's remembering back to where he finds his validation in those days and those times with Jesus. And he writes this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. 
Let me speak it over you this morning. It says this, but you are a chosen people. You are a, a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are God's special possessions that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not the people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So this morning, can I tell you this? Stop listening to the world's lies that tell you that somehow or another you're going to find identity in this or that, that you're going to be validated by this at some point in life if you would just work harder and go stronger at it. Because someday you will stand before God and he will look upon you. And if you have accepted Jesus as the Lord of your life, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant, for you are my chosen people and I love you dearly.